Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. The savings rock when you find a new way to roll. Like sharing the ride to work. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others who live and work near you. It's easy and free. Plus, you can get cash and other rewards for carpooling. Up to $600 a year. Get rolling on a new way to work with Rideshare. Register today at commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. That's commuterconnections.org. Some restrictions apply. I got Lindsey Buckingham in the studio, peeps. Like, let's let's lay down some tracks, man. I, I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm, I'm a little rusty, but, no, it, you know. You're not rusty. No, no, no. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Literally. Um, so from the minute I started making my um, dream guest list, this man was on it. Um, I am a huge Lindsey Buckingham fan. I'm a huge Fleetwood Mac fan. I love music. This guy is been there, done that. You know, he's on the, the Mount Rushmore of 70s and 80s and, and, and forever. Um, pop music geniuses. So let's 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 find out where the bodies are buried with Lindsey Buckingham. You're on tour now. I am, as a matter of fact. I there, an album that that I finished literally three years ago, and was trying to get out for a number of years. Events kept sort of conspiring against it. We finally got it out. I'd say yes. <laughs> Any number of things. <laughs> yeah. Take your pick. Yeah. And um, you know in. We finally got it out, and we've done one leg of of the tour. We're going back out in December, and then April, and then over to the UK and Europe in uh, in I guess May. It's great. The second single is particularly awesome. Oh, thank you. What is the name of it? Uh, probably on the wrong side. Yeah, it's yeah. Sort of go your own way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's. I mean, like when you have tremendous success doing something like you, you do with Fleetwood Mac and you have a sound, like the, there's not only is it successful, it's a sound. Right. So what do you, do you go, I don't want to do that. Or you do, how much do you fight against it? And then you kind of go, it's, it's sort of what I do best. And then do, do you know what I, do you know what yeah. I mean? Oh yeah. It's, it's a, a tightrope that you, it's a push pull that you've got to walk. Um, and you know, for after rumors, which at some point became always about the music, but but because the success was so great of that album, the success became about the success after a while. Right. You know what I'm talking yeah, about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I was very much opposed to trying to make, quote, rumors too, you know, which where you start to paint yourself into a corner, corner and start to think in a formulaic way. Well, let me so, ask you that. Let me, I'm trying to know this. No. I, I'm a huge... Fleetwood Mac fan, right? Uh, bordering on Fleetwood Mac nerd. So, <laughs> but so Fleetwood Mac, the first your first album with 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 you and Stevie, right? And Rumors are not totally dissimilar. No, they are not. So, how would the third one have been Rumors 
two. Do you know what I'm saying? If the first two weren't. Well, only because the, the, the first one did very well, but probably sold three or four million albums. And the second one became a, a sort of Michael Jackson land phenomenon. Yeah, totally. And um, I, I at that point, you've got these corporate sort of mentalities that start to nudge you in a certain direction. And I think you've what you've got to say about that first album and Rumors was that it, they were both uh, created from the inside out. Mm-hmm. They were they were created from our gut and from our instincts, and there was no one, there was nothing external uh, trying to come into play at all in terms of influencing what we we're going to do. Give me a, a glimpse into how that happens. Is It's the phone call from the A&R guy who goes, hey, man, like, how does the subtle corporate pressure well, manifest itself? I'm not sure that it ever actually manifests itself. It's just that it it gets, everyone knows that it's it's the elephant in the room. Right. And so, you know, it's not only the uh, the... The record company, it is the expectation from the fans to a certain degree. It is also, in my case, it was, it became sort of the mindset of other people in the band. And me being the troublemaker that I always have been, you know, I just said, well, let's, let's, you know, undermine any sort of possibility of painting ourselves into a corner or beginning to do that. And, and, uh, really confound people's expectations. And I was also quite interested in exploring some new processes as well at that time. So the two things kind of coincided. Which you, I mean, and you've, you've, you did. I did. We made Tusk, Tusk. which was, yeah. you know, a, a completely different kind of thing. And um, in a way, that was my line in the sand that, and I, I still am so proud of that album, not for necessarily the outcome of it artistically, although that too, but more the, the reason, choice. the reason, the choice, exactly. Yeah. Well, before we started recording, we were talking about choices and even little things add up in the totality of a, of a career. That's right. I mean, they, re- they really do. And, um, and sometimes you don't know what the sum total and, and effect of those choices is going to be until years later. You that's know? right. You know? And you also don't know what stands the test of time it, the, people have revisionist history with songs and albums and that's right more so more so now that everything is streamable yeah. um i mean my my um impression of you from without ever knowing you and reading the media and and in in you know it, it, you're part of one of the great rock and roll soap operas of all time oh yeah of all time continuing to continuing this day, of all apparently. time <laughs> is like you suffer no fools and that you giving your druthers would not rather play the hits all night all every single time all night mm-hmm. and not, maybe not so wild about touring well you know th- there is something about touring which is not only repetitive obviously inherent in in what you need to do but but there's also uh sort of shifting onto being on automatic um uh, because i mean not hundred percent because there are variables from night to night certainly and that's what makes a performance but uh at the same time you know you're, you're sticking to the script listen i've i have when i did a few good men with aaron sorkin on stage at the royal Haymarket, 
We it was great. I did 160 performances every night, but there were nights during the performance when I could check my shopping list in my head. Well, it does happen. Yeah, it happens. What am I going to have to eat after the show? Okay. You're actually playing yeah, and, and singing. You know, yeah, exactly. And there's nothing wrong with that it's either. It's natural. Yeah, exactly. Because you're on automatic, and that's fine. But you know, I it's it's not that I didn't enjoy touring because in in some ways touring was uh, an expansion of my energy and and over time. It, it got to be better and better for me. You got to understand that in the early days in Fleetwood Mac, um, we didn't have a lot of our own material. So I was the one who had to sort of cover the Peter Green or oh the Danny Kerwin or the Bob Welch. And so it took a while for it not to feel, uh, you know, quite so clubby. And uh, probably after Tusk, really, was when we kind of came into our own and were able to pretty much do. Uh, just a body of work which we could call our own, and that that meant that was a great transition for me. So Bob Welsh, he leaves the band, but then goes on a run of his own. He had so many hits off that that solo album right That's after right. he left. Yeah, why didn't he just stay in Fleetwood Mac and have those massive hits with them? I really couldn't tell you. I didn't know Bob very well. I did, you know, I was involved with some of the production on that particular album that oh, you were referring to. Yeah, uh, Sentimental Lady. Yeah, and, it's a great album. Um, but you know, I, I I would have to assume that you know at the time that Bob left, you got to look at where the group was right before Stevie and I joined, um, and it was really Mick Mick Fleetwood who had had uh, been so so motivated to keep the group together at any cost, and because of that, it had gone from what it had originally been, which was you know a four piece then a five piece kind of progressive blues band into more of a pop kind of uh, riff band with Christine. And, and then it sort of went through this period of, of, of a series of albums in which there it was a different group of people every right. time. And the, the albums stylistically were arguably non sequiturs from one to the other. 100%. I think I would argue some of the songs are non sequiturs. Yes, exactly. And so you had... A situation where they're living up in Laurel Canyon and they're wondering how much longer Mo Austin is going to keep them on the label. And, you know, I've I've always said this. I've said this a million times. I give Mo... It's such a comment on on not just Mo Austin's intuitiveness to keep them on the label when they weren't really making the, the label any money at that time, but also the... It's a comment on the business in general and the autonomy he had to do that compared to today where I think it's a lot more sort of you know, board, boardroom kind of thing. And so, you know, he he just waited around and thought, well, maybe, you know, there's something good here. Maybe something will happen. And then Stevie and I come along. But right before that, I can see where Bob Welch might have been. You know, uh, he was worried. He was. He had thought it maybe was the end. Yeah, he had been in the band for a long time, and it didn't seem to be going anywhere. So right. Who knew? Right. Mo, I I had forgotten Mo Austin. I'm one of the great gentlemen of oh, the business. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. And if if you're interested in music out there and you're listening and you don't know Mo Austin, you should Google it. He needs a documentary about him. I'm sure there probably is one. I the, the, he definitely deserves one. I mean, he started off. Um, running Reprise because uh, Frank Sinatra, who started Reprise Records, put him in charge of the label. I mean, it goes back to the early 60s, you know. Um, Stevie tells a great story about... I think Stevie tells a lot of great stories. She does. She does. She tells... Um, uh, the uh, <laughs> She tells a story about the, 
the first time she saw you, she actually heard your voice at a party. Right, that's and, right. Right, and and followed the voice, and it was you playing. I picture you like the guy in Animal House singing on the stairs with the guitar. Well, I gave my love a cherry. Is that what was going on? Something like that. I, I don't remember what it was. I think it was a little hipper than that. Okay, good. But not much. <laughs> and it was interesting because Stevie, you know, I, I grew up, you know, in in the same house with the same friends from like kindergarten through high school. She got uprooted almost every year because of her father's business and had to make new friends and learn how to make a splash, which obviously served her well later. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yes, I, I was very aware of her. She was a year older, and she came in. She transferred into Menlo Atherton as a senior. She was like a little beatnik, you know, and it was very cute. Something to behold. Did you know she sang? I did. Did you guys sing Harmony that very first time you met? It's I actually don't remember, but I, if I had to guess, I would say yes. But then she went off to college, and I didn't see her for another year, and then she ended up joining a band that I was in after that. The Buckingham Knicks album cover is one of the great album covers in the history of album covers. Oh, that's nice. And if you guys haven't seen it out there, Google it. Yes. And I think it was totally ripped off for Star is Born. For, for, um, could have been. I never thought of If you look at the Chris Christopherson... Um, Barbara Streisand, right. somebody looked at Buckingham next. Okay, I'll take it. Yeah, and was like, mm, <laughs> we're going to just steal this. Do you ever get tired of talking about the soap opera that is your relationship with Stevie, or is it just such a part of your muse? Well, I mean, it it, it keeps uh, evolving, obviously, you know, <laughs> or devolving, perhaps, at right. this point. I'm not, I'm not really sure. Uh, no, it, it, I mean, it, as you say, it's part and parcel with with the the whole uh, story, and and it contextualizes things often. So I, I have, I'm completely happy to talk about it. When, when anything you want to talk when, about. No, when you when you're so when you were singing with Stevie every night. By the way, I've only seen you guys once. And wow. I finally, and it took forever, I, for whatever reason, I saw you at the O2. But when you guys are, and people in the audience loves the soap opera of it all. It's it's almost, it's just baked into the DNA of it all is, of it now. It is, and it's part of the reason for the, the appeal, for sure. And when you're, so when you guys are singing, you know, uh, you know, one of, one, of, one, 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 one of the hate songs, whichever one, <laughs> and you're looking at each other, and, and do you, does it ever feel performative to you? Do you know that like, Oh, this is the time where I've got to look at Stevie or she's got to look at me and we got to act like it's all do, do you know what I mean or or well I I think it does get that way. It does become sort of uh an exercise in mechanics to some degree. Right. But then there are other times considering what may or may not be going on off stage where where it may take on a, a different layer. Cuz the night I saw you guys a big piece had come out in one of the London papers. And Stevie was very upset at you because you were upset about the long-winded stories between the songs. Hmm. And and so I was like, I wonder what they're going to... But this is what the audience loves. They love coming to see, you know, it's like, the like, are they going to be getting along? Are they not right. going to be well, getting along? Well, you know, along? the long-winded stories has become sort of a... Run, it had become sort of a running gag with with the rest of the band to the point where, you know... Sometimes Mick and Christine would start dancing behind her. It's amazing, you know, just like just to make a little punchline out of it, you know. But you know, that's part of what she likes to do, and that's fine. It, you know, I I have heard that she talks quite a bit more in on her solo shows 
And that's her right. You know, it's, it's people. Lo- I mean, you know, it's like she told the story of of. Um, so I'm back to the Velvet Underground. That that behind that mm-hmm. the lyrics of of Gypsy. I I never knew that. Right. I I never knew it was a thrift shop store, and she went there. I mean, I know you know the story a billion trillion times, but I was like, oh, right. Well, why um, would you, right? Well, but yeah. I was thought I, to the floor I loved. I just thought I was hurt with a mattress on the floor in some apartment. No, it was right. a design on the floor that she liked in a shop that she couldn't afford now she's a rock star and she can afford it right and, and I, I love that yeah and and that what's so great about her lyrics is that they are poetic in the way that uh make it a rorschach for whatever you want it to be about how much know? of how much of you when when you get that how much of it like it's like people write books some people write books they don't need an editor, really. It's almost fully formed. Others, they're just sort of, I don't mean it vomiting out like in a pejorative, like it's a bad thing, but they're just sort of putting it all up against the wall. Right. What What is that process like? My sense is with her, it's more like a lot goes out and then there's some shaping that's involved. Well, I mean, her stuff was always completely raw. You t- take a song like Dreams, which, you know, or, or Gypsy or, or something. I mean, it comes to me... Basically, like, she's playing something with two fingers on the piano. What's great about what she's doing is not only just her voice, but she's also got this superb sense of placement with her rhythms and obviously her lyrics. And those things are fully formed. But say a song like Dreams, it was the same two chords and there was nothing. You know, it, it, it completely needed... Uh, you couldn't even really tell where the chorus was. You, it, it needed framing mm-hmm. from one section to the other, and the framing needed to be very well differentiated. So, you know, you get into a verse and then a passing section and a chorus, and that's all generally what I what I did for Stevie was add, uh, I mean, you could call it production, but in a way it went sort of beyond that, some level of composition as well instrumentally. Not right. not enough to say, hey, I, you know, it's not about getting writing credit, but it's about taking the full potential, taking the potential of what's there and fulfilling it. Yeah, because a lot of times people all they have is a riff. That's right. Or, or, or whatever. Well, she has her center always, and it's just everything around it. Gypsy's another example. I mean, if you take away all of the thematic work that that I added to that, the song becomes sort of vaguely conversational, but not necessarily very engaging in the same way musically. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Mom, I got the job in Manhattan. Do you have a warm enough winter coat? What about your car? I'm selling it with Kelly Blue Book Instant Cash Offer. How? I enter my license plate number, miles, condition, upload photos, and boom, an official cash offer from a local dealership. A cash offer instantly? Oh, did you call Aunt Stella? She's right there in Massachusetts. Mom, I literally just got the job. Not everything is as simple as selling your car with Kelly Blue Book Instant Cash Offer. Price it, fix it, trade it, sell it, kbb.com it. 
How did, how did you feel about dreams becoming a TikTok phenomenon? Well, I mean, this is the world we live in. Right? It's a dude on a skateboard drinking orange juice. Right. To dreams. That's right. what it is. That's what it is. Yeah. And it's and now an entire generation of 11-year-old, 12-year-old, 13-year-old people are obsessed with that song again. Yes. But you know what that also uh, underscores, which is something we began to see more and more uh, as a band, as our time together uh, grew, it started to become so obvious that that what we'd done was that we'd done something right. Because... You know, uh, when you uh, when a song comes out and it's a hit, you know, you don't re- like you were mentioning what stands the test of time and what doesn't. Well, it takes the equation of time in order to know whether you've done your job properly. And at some point, many tours ago, we started to realize that we were seeing maybe three generations of people at our shows. And so reaching that broad a, a set of demographics, I think implies that you you've done something which is universally meaningful and and so in a way mm-hmm. that's that's a reason for something like the TikTok uh, moment to to have blown up as much as it did because there was there was there was a, a substance to it you know oh yeah well listen my um my favorite I think my favorite guitar solo in the world <laughs> in the world in the world come at me people <laughs> is um yours and you make love and fun oh nice okay that's my it's melodic it's simple it's got enough complexity that right. it's hard it's like right in this for me that's like and i'll never forget being at the o2 and it was like ringing ringing off the back of the arena oh good i mean it was like bowing but that tone that you have it's is that's the one guitar that you designed right yes i mean when i first joined the band i was playing a stratocaster which is sort of thinner sounding but also very percussive because i don't use a pick that was a great which i had no idea until i saw you crazy <laughs> amazing um that that's that get that sound on a guitar was was very much uh uh appropriate for no pick and just a finger style. Unfortunately, the Stratocaster as a sound did not fit in with the pre-existing sound of Fleetwood Mac, uh, which was they had a fatter sound on the drums, on the bass, on the keyboards. And so I had to switch over to a Les Paul, which wasn't as well suited because it didn't wasn't as clean, wasn't as percussive. It's a huge guitar, right? Yes. And it was great for solos, but not necessarily great for everything else. So... After, uh, I think it was while we were making rumors, I asked Rick Turner, who was a guy uh, who worked at a company called Alembic, which was making uh, kind of uh, custom bases for John at that time, and was based in Northern California. I said, can you design me a guitar, which is a cross between a Les Paul and a Stratocaster? And that's what he came up with, and I've used them ever since. Ever since. Ever since. So, okay, another great story I've heard is that um, on Go Your Own Way, you wanted uh, Mick to, uh, Fleetwood to play like a street fighting man type yes. drum and he couldn't do it or didn't know what it was. Well, he Something did know what it story. was. Tell that story because I love it. Because, I mean, he did play his version of it. It's his version of it. Yes. But, you know, I mean, Charlie Watts was playing like a kick 
with a with a push, like boom, 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 and then he was going boom, tack on the snare, and then toms. So it was like tack, boom, 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 tack, boom, 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 with it with a different kick pattern. And Mick, I mean, one of the things I truly love and admire about Mick is that he has no idea what he's doing. And, and the beauty of that, you know, that it's all just coming right from his center. He's never, I mean, I've never had a lesson either, but uh, still, he uh, he's a true primitive in, in the best sense of the word. And he can only do what he can do. Yeah. And he has to feel it the way he feels it. So he paraphrased that and made it a 4-4 kick and, and opened up the, the tom pattern, but basically got the same idea in. So in your mind, it was a street fighting man. And, and it became this legendary Yeah, no, I hybrid. mean, that was, that was just my way of articulating what I wanted to start with. And knowing full well he might, you know, do something else. And that, that was absolutely fine, you know, because Mick is Mick. Somebody I read, um, one of those big Rolling Stone type things, and they were saying that if you want to know what Fleetwood Mac is, and if you want to figure out if you like them or don't like them or whatever, um, on Say You Love Me with the fallen, fallen, fallen riff at the end. Like that's the quintessential Fleetwood Mac moment, somebody mm. said, which I thought was kind of interesting because it's it's featuring three amazing singers who right. would all be lead singers in their own bands. Right. And it's it's and it's introducing something which hasn't happened in the rest of the song as a tag. And it's got just this sort of whole orchestral uh uh kind of guitar work which you know is like sort of the big payoff for everything else in the song it's a really well constructed song it is and i i give keith olsen who who engineered that album um a lot of credit for the job he did on on that album it was great who were your favorite bands of that era were you like you a steely dan fan were you an Eagles fan, like who? Who were you competitive with? Any of those other folks who were also selling records, or? Well, you know, I mean, I, of course, I I love Steely Dan. Who who can't be enamored of their skill and and their musicianship? Um, I I loved some of the Eagles. I I, spe- I tended to gravitate towards Don's stuff more. Um, Favorite Eagles track. Oh boy! I don't even put you on the spot, but I love because I think it's very illuminative. If right. That's even a word <laughs> of like if you have a canon like the Eagles do, like the song that somebody picks. Same with Fleetwood Mac, by the way. Um, I like. I, I mean, I like where they evolved to Hotel California. Yeah, you know that kind of thing. So, Life in the Fast Lane. I mean, iconic. Yes. I've been told that uh, Don wrote that about Stevie and me, too, so who knows? Wow. <laughs> I'm not sure if that's true or not. I love that. I thought I'd heard every... Uh-huh. Well, we'll see. You're, you, you, are, to... you are brutally handsome. Brutally handsome and... Uh, You're brutally and handsome. And a cruel dude. Um, you know. I loved Cat Stevens when, oh. when I was younger. I mean, just the way those records were put together is transcendent to me. You know, then what happened later on, after, again, this sort of coincided with the rumor's success, was that the whole new wave thing started to come over from, I mean, it was in, in the States too, but, you know, if, certainly from the UK. And a lot of that reinforced what I was already feeling, which was I don't want to, 
become an establishment thing. So suddenly you've got the police or you've got, uh, you know, Elvis Costello or you've got, mm-hmm. um, you know, even talking heads or, I mean, th- brilliant stuff. And it just sort of reinforced my belief that, that something like Tusk needed to be where we went. So why do you think the bass riff on the chain has become such a big deal? Well, I I think because because it you're talking boom, about boom, 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 yeah, boom, boom, boom. it's just it's just the tag bass riff and the chain were how many different songs it was it was multiple ideas um, that you stitched together kind of I mean I had the verse and um, I think Stevie came up with the chorus and Christine I forget what she threw in there but something and then and John got credit for the baseline <laughs> and um i think what what it is about that baseline is, is it is very thematic and very magnetic but it's also the timing of it you've already gotten through the body of the song and now the end is coming and the solo is coming at the end and so everything comes down and suddenly it and the little ticking on the symbols leading yeah. up is like a, is like a fuse going. Yeah, so the the tension that it builds, and, and the attention that it therefore garners, you know, because of that, I think is a lot of the appeal of that bass riff. It's so good. Spinal Tap is one of my favorite movies. <laughs> I I have heard that that um, Derek Smalls, the bassist in Spinal Tap, played by Harry Shearer, is a, is a combination of Entwistle and McVie. That sounds about right. Does that make sense? It does. I mean, not that I could take that apart and say, right. there, there's John, but yes. Right? It's, sure, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's a, God, that movie is a great movie. <laughs> so, oh, so that comedies, we're talking about comedies, Holiday Road. Right. Love it. That little uh riff stuck with me. That's the earworm of earworms. <laughs> yes, it's the sort of the hook that the almost the afterthought, but you know, it got in there. I yeah, I mean Harold Ramis you know, I didn't know him. He, he and I, I You saw the movie, right? Did you see the movie? It's for vacation by the way, if you guys don't remember. He showed I think he had the rough cut at the time. And then uh, I went back and, and wrote the song and recorded it at my house. And then we, you know, he came down and we played it for him. And I just think he was so, so pleased with it. And I, I mean, I, I just got lucky, you know. I mean, it it wasn't just that. It was the song that they, that somehow I put together, which was almost like a 40s Mills Brothers kind of thing at the, the Dancing Across the USA, which... I had already written but hadn't recorded yet, and it was just one of those things that fit so well in the movie because that's what they were doing, Dancing Across the USA, and to have that for the credits at the end, I mean, it was just a one-two punch, and it was great. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car... 
Use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. Were you at all involved in We Are the World? I was. I was up there. I was out at A&M Records, which is what it was before it was Hanson. And That's right. Uh, right on La Brea? Whatever. Yes. It was the old Charlie Chaplin studios. Right. I That's mean, right. a huge fan of Charlie Chaplin, so it was a thrill to be there at all. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I was just in the back somewhere. <laughs> it's, I, I'm obsessed with that night. I'm obs- I mean, that, that video is. There are a lot of people in that. A lot of people. A lot of and, people. And, and there are, it's, <clears throat> and by the way, it's no different for uh, an actor when we go to do like a telethon. Right. It's like, you might get relegated to the phone bank. Right. Or. You might get to have a five-minute monologue where you get teary-eyed and ask the people for money. Like, you just don't know. You don't know. You don't yeah. You show up. No, it was, it was uh, there were so many people there. I mean, I walked into the bathroom and scared Michael Jackson, who was standing in front of the mirror by himself, no one else in there. And I walked in, and he kind of started and turned around, and I, I didn't want to bother him. I just kind of waved and did my business and left. <laughs> it's an amazing group. I mean— yeah. Like I say, I was just relegated to the back part of the chorus. There was never any chance that I was going to be uh, singing even one word by myself, but and I was fine with it. I was just happy to be there. <laughs> but you know, listen, it's part of the great thing. It's part. It's part to be of it. But I, I, I just that was a real moment in time that you can't ever, yeah, recreate. Exactly. You're playing L.A. in December. December, the very beginning of December. Yeah. How do you choose your 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 set lists? How do you go through that? Well, it's uh, with with uh, it's pretty willy nilly, you know. This time we actually thought about making little subsets almost. So basically, we were coming out and doing like five or six songs that are all from solo work, and then the band goes off, and I do four songs just with the acoustic guitar. And then the band comes back on and we do four songs from the new album in a row. And then we end with four Fleetwood Mac songs. Amazing. That's great. Yeah. So it's it's just like kind of sections it out and it seems to be working very well. How often do you practice and or play at this point in your life? You mean just sitting around? Not hardly at all. I mean, I do, you know, I'm very self-sufficient. It's like the new album you know, I engineered it and mixed it and played everything and performed everything. So, I mean, I, I am sort of going through the paces in a way, but I don't sit around and, and do scales or just sit around and try to practice. It just is, it doesn't come that way for me now. It's more about if, I, if I'm in the mode of wanting to be creative, you know, like a writer or a painter, you know, because it's a one-on-one with my work. I'm not making a movie with a bunch of people where it has to be verbalized and it has their politics involved and conscious things to get from point A to point B. I mean, it's all intuitive. You just have to say, now I'm going to do this for a while. And, and you when, you, when you write, do you have a, a routine or is it purely a good... Do you have a desk? Do you go sit somewhere? Do you hold a guitar? Do you? Well, you know, I I usually it's it's sort of I I think the idea of having an idea 
it's my belief stuff is sort of passing over your head all the time. It's whether you've got your antenna up or not. And so if you're in that mode, you know, then you're going to, these days anyway, you're going to hum something into your voice memo and, uh, or, or you're going to hum and, and play something depending on what it is. And then, then everything else having to do with the evolvement of the writing actually comes during the recording. Because, you know, again, like a painter, he may start off with a certain preconception about what he's going to do. But if he's attuned to his own subconscious, the the canvas is going to start to lead him in directions he may not have expected to go. And it's the same thing with with working in the studio behind a console. And maybe you start with a little idea and then that evolves into something else and that suddenly leads you off in a different direction and and it's just about paying attention and being open you know that's what music is for to be the soundtrack to people's lives in a way you know and to have it you know enhance their the other aspects of their experiences i think 100 percent. well i uh this has been a total thrill oh my pleasure Wow, that that was so fun. I'm I'm like buzzing like a little schoolboy. I'm a little schoolboy because I was such a a fan. Oh my god, I felt I I was just liter I was just like fanning out. I hope it wasn't too much for you guys. Um, but this is why one of the reasons I do this. People always say, "Why do you do? What are you doing a podcast for?" That's why because I'm not ever gonna ask him that if I meet him at the Grammy after party. You know what I mean? I'm not gonna. Go, hey, man, how'd you get that guitar tone on Dreams? It's not going to happen. Happens here, though, and it just did. And you were listening. All right, I'm going to listen to some of these lowdown lines. Hello, you've reached literally in our lowdown line, where you can get the lowdown on all things about me, Rob Lowe. 323-570-4551. So have at it. Here's the beep. Yo, Rob Lowe. My name is Dan. I'm from Seattle. I'm calling you from Asuncion, Paraguay, where I am a teacher, a really great teacher, an award-winning teacher. I gave myself the awards. But anyway, I have a question for you, Rob Lowe. What was Rob Lowe's favorite actor to work with and why? Thank you, Rob Lowe. Well, hello from Paraguay. I love, it's an international podcast. I've been telling everybody, you know, our, our, it's, it's far ranging, our audience. Um, my favorite actor, that's so hard to say. I think you kind of got to go with your instinct and the first thing that pops up because the, truthfully, I've worked with so many great ones that it would be tough. But I, I pound for pound, just acting I think it's Allison Janney. She's got technique. She's got charisma. She can be funny. She can be dramatic. She is not showy. You know, when you watch her work, it doesn't look like she's working super hard at it. It all seems super natural and easy. She's got kind of got ticks all of the things that I like stylistically in 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 an actor, and um and and also a great person. Um, and listen, let's face it. Um, as I hear myself talk, it's not that bold of a choice. I mean, she's got 
an Academy Award and she's got 75 Emmys. So I'm not, you know, I'm not alone. I think I'm going with the, the great Allison Janney. Thanks for, for, for calling in. Appreciate it. Hello to Paraguay. Thank you. Um, by the way, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. Hit subscribe, would you? And, and, and um, throw down us with a little Apple uh, five-star review. I want five stars. And I'll see you next week because we have really fun, uh, fantastic guest. I'm not going to say who it is yet, but you will find out soon. Thanks for listening. This was Literally with me, Rob Lowe. You've been listening to Literally with Rob Lowe, produced and engineered by me, Rob Schulte. Our coordinating producer is Lisa Berm. The podcast is executive produced by Rob Lowe for Low Profile, Jeff Ross, Adam Sachs, and Joanna Solitaroff at Team Coco, and Colin Anderson at Stitcher. Our talent bookers are Gina Batista, Paula Davis, and Britt Kahn, and music is by Devin Tory Bryant. Make sure to leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, and we'll see you next week on Literally with Rob Lowe. This has been a Team Coco production in association with Stitcher. Stitcher.